0: You're listening to the Queen City Church Sermon of the Week. For more information on this message and other resources, visit queencity.church. Good morning, everybody, and happy Mother's Day. I married a woman who became a mother, and I had a mother. My mother's in heaven with my dad, so... If you can hear me up there, God bless you, Mom. You did a, well, you did a good job. I didn't always respond. Anyway, moving right along. Ha-ha. <laughs> awesome, awesome. Let me ask this question. I felt, I believe this is from the Lord, that um, someone here has had trouble with um, sores in in or around your mouth. And I wanted to pray if that was person was here. Has anyone here had those kind of problems? Could you wave at me? You don't need to be shy, or but I did feel like okay, all right. Well, Father, we do. We ask that you would just break that now. That there would be just a simple prayer of faith. Um, no more, no more, no more. In Jesus' name. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, that was just a quick little thing there. Calling this morning's message, A Key to Spiritual Breakthrough. And I was listening to um, um, a a Christian movie director that was being interviewed by a man named Jordan Peterson. And this director was talking about the Bible, and he said this. He said, you see the Old Testament as this incredible saga or saga of a people trying to find the rules that kept them together as a people. And if you disobey these rules, it's going to end badly for us all. And as I was thinking about that and what this gentleman named Randall Wallace said, I felt like he was referring to truths, principles, and the wisdom of God that enabled his people to flourish down through the ages. And one of those rules, and I want to talk about this this morning, one of those rules, and I talked about some of it last week, so I just feel like the Lord is um, really emphasizing this. One of those rules is praying for people we don't necessarily like or even our enemies. Yeah. And it's an important key for spiritual breakthrough. So, to um pray that way, we need to be free from bitterness and unforgiveness. Everybody understand that. This morning, we're going to examine two different Old Testament um, uh, stories or accounts. One concerns a bitter pool of water, and the other involves how the patriarch Abraham dealt with his own stronghold of fear. And so, the first one... Is found in Exodus 15 verses 22 through 25. And I believe you'll be able to, uh, to read this with me. So Moses brought Israel from the Red Sea. Then they went out into the wilderness of Shur. And they went three days in the wilderness and found no water. Now, when they came to Marah, they could not drink the waters of Marah for they were bitter. Therefore, the name of it was called Mara. Mara means bitter. The people complained against Moses saying, what shall we drink? So he cried out to the Lord and the Lord showed him a tree. The Lord showed him a tree. When he cast it into the waters, the waters were made sweet. There he made a statute and an ordinance for them. And there he did what? Tested them, and there he tested them. So it turns out what we read about is a test. How many of you are aware that God tests us? At least wave a foot if you can't wave your hand. Yeah. How many of you are happy about it? (laughs) Uh Ha-ha, yes. But if we don't understand that, It's not going to go well for us. There he tested them. After 400 years of slavery in Egypt, and after being miraculously delivered by the Lord through the Red Sea, Israel walked through a very dry place for how long? Without water. Three days. How many of you have ever gone three days without water? Yeah. How many of you still fast? Yeah, there you go. Good. I've started fasting a little bit myself. Um, I heard this guy say this the other day and I knew it was true. Um, they've named that process the wrong thing. It ought to be called a slow, not a fast, nothing fast about it. But anyway, it's a good discipline. And I believe the Lord, I believe we should be fasters. So they went through three days without water. And think about that. No water for three days. How would you respond? How would you respond if you were with, I think the numbers are close to two million people, walking through a desert together, dusty, no water, and it was a test? What would the test be over? Well, there would be several parts to it. Are you going to trust the Lord? Are you going to complain? Are you going to become... Bitter, And then the biggest part of the test was they come upon a, a source of water, and that place was called Mara, which means bitter because the water was bitter. So finally you do find water, and it's bitter. So if you were here last week, and if you weren't, you can still get this message on our uh, queencity.church website. If you were here last week, you heard my message on why so many women named Mary surrounded Jesus in his earthly ministry. Um, and it's a prophetic picture. The name Mary also comes from this very same word, Mara, that we find in Exodus 15, which means bitter. And to me, it speaks of the plague of bitterness that consumes many people both in and out of the church. And I will be very frank. I believe the world is in a bitterness pandemic, which is much more serious than the COVID you hear me? And long term, except, of course, for people who had pre-existing conditions, they passed away. Don't misunderstand what I'm saying. But as a general rule, the bitterness pandemic is the more serious one because it has the potential to absolutely wreck our lives from here on out until we pass that test. And it is test. There is a bitterness test and you may take it even more than once even if you pass it okay but all of us face the bitterness test and it is just simply the way life is bitterness can be the fruit of unforgiveness or it can be unmet expectations or disappointments but Jesus can heal people from bitterness and you see the profound effect, if you read through the Gospels and look at those different Marys, Mary is mother, Mary Magdalene, Mary the sister of um, Lazarus and Martha, uh, Mary the wife of Cleopas, Mary, John Mark's mother, if you look at those women, you discover they did not live up to their name. They got through into a powerful place because of their relationship with Jesus. Jesus can heal bitter people. And so when we look at Exodus, while the Israelites were complaining, Moses cried out to the Lord who did this, showed him a tree. And Moses cast that tree into the waters and the waters were made sweet. How would you like to go from being bitter to being sweet? You need a tree. You need to relate to a tree, a specific tree. God showed Moses a tree. When he threw that tree in, The waters became sweet. And it's a prophetic picture of the cross. And the cross is the key that makes bitter water sweet. The cross is where Jesus, um, the most undeserving of all people ever, the most noble, the kindest, the righteous one, was tortured and died for our sins on that tree. That tree, the cross, is the place where Jesus forgave everyone. Everyone. He offers everyone a complete and total pass we receive by faith. His response to his terrible mistreatment was to forgive. What did he say on the cross? One of the last things he said, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. Father, forgive them. We take up the cross by forgiving everyone because Jesus forgave us. Forgiveness is the key to our victories and success as believers. Now, here's the key. Every time we're wounded, we have a choice. We have a choice to become one of two things, bitter or better. And embracing the cross, if we can understand it, can actually make us sweet. It will turn the bitter water sweet. One important way we gain spiritual authority comes from how we handle being wounded. One way we gain spiritual authority in this life is how we handle being wounded. When we forgive, we gain authority to help and release others who've also been wounded. And the Bible tells us, it's a little bit mysterious, but it tells us that by His stripes we are healed. Jesus took our wounds... And he forgave and through that process opened up a sweet well of healing and forgiveness. Jesus suffered the greatest of all injustices. And through forgiving, he became able to heal the greatest of all ailments. He has power to heal us through the wounds he received and the degree to which he forgave. Is this making any sense? But I was talking earlier with the dear one in the church about um, the pain um, she had suffered. And it struck me that in the redemptive plan of God, although I don't believe God does these things to us because of the fall, things happen to us. And in the redemptive plan of God, those wounds, those hurts, when we can... um, Forgive and when we can receive healing, actually those very episodes create us, create within us a larger capacity to hold more of the goodness and grace of God. Now that's a hard thing to understand, but it's actually true. The degree that you've been wounded as you handle it right is the degree that you can actually help people way more than normally. Somebody ought to really get excited maybe. Um Every offense, every wound, every unjust thing we've suffered, we must take to the cross. There we will see the one who died for all offenses and freely forgave. That's what happens when you go to the cross. That's what that means. That's part of what that means. You can go there. You can leave your offenses there. You can receive forgiveness from the one who was the most offended. Now, I want to shift gears. I want to talk about an episode between Abraham and a man named Abimelech. Is there an old expression like father, like son? I'm sure everyone here is familiar with that. Well, the Bible says Abraham's our father, so we should be like Abraham in certain ways. And um, I'm going to read one of the most unusual, well, a very unusual, narrative, a very unusual story here in the Old Testament. But built into it are these life-changing implications if we can lay hold of this truth it contains. So I'm going to be reading from Genesis 20, and um, I'm just going to read this whole story. And let me warn you in advance, I don't understand all of it, okay? And I can't give you exact answers for all of it, but there's part of it I think we really need to see. So this is a story about Abraham and Sarah prior to the birth of Isaac. Abraham journeyed from there to the south and dwelt between Kadesh and Shur and stayed in Gerar. Now Abraham said of Sarah his wife, She is my sister. And Abimelech, king of Gerar, sent and took Sarah. But God came to Abimelech in a dream by night and said to him, Indeed, you are a dead man because of the woman whom you have taken, for she is a man's wife. And Abimelech had not come near her, and he said, Lord, will you slay a righteous nation also? Did Abraham not say to me, She's my sister? And she, even she herself said, He's my brother. In the integrity of my heart, and the innocence of my hands, I have done this, apparently, Sarah was a very beautiful woman, and um, this kind of thing would happen in that culture. So everybody with me so far? a little bit strange, Yes, anyway, here it is. So God said to him, a dream, "Yes, I know that you did this in the integrity of your heart, for I also withheld you from sinning against me, therefore, I did not let you touch her." Verse seven. Now, therefore, restore the man's wife. For that man is a prophet, and he will pray for you, and you shall live. But if you do not restore her, know that you shall surely die, you and all who are yours. So this is a pretty scary episode. So here's what happens. Abimelech gets up, calls his servants, tells him this whole story. And then he goes to Abraham, and he says, Abraham, what have you done to us? How have I offended you that you have brought on me and on my kingdom a great sin? You've done deeds to me that ought not to be done. So Abimelech also says to Abraham, what did you have in view that you've done this thing? And Abraham said this, because I thought surely the fear of God is not in this place and you will kill me on account of my wife. But indeed, she truly is my sister. She's the daughter of my father but not the daughter of my mother, and she became my wife. Is that a little strange? Well, these are spiritual forefathers. <laughs> you know, the wonderful thing about the Bible is it shows people in all their peopleness. Yeah, it doesn't, it, doesn't, uh, it doesn't skip much stuff, does it? Anyway. This is going on. She's my sister. She's the daughter of my father, but not the daughter of my mother, and she became my wife. And it came to pass when God caused to me to wander from my father's house that I said to her, this is your kindness that you should do for me. In every place, wherever we go, say of me. He's my brother. Abraham was afraid. That's what it boils down to. So Abimelech took sheep, oxen, male and female servants and gave them to Abraham and he restored Sarah, his wife to him. And Abimelech said, see, my land is before you dwell where it pleases you. Then to Sarah he said, behold, I have given your brother a thousand, and that's interesting. I've never seen him before. He's sort of poking her. Behold, I have given your brother a thousand pieces of silver. Indeed, this vindicates you before all who are with you and before everybody. Thus she was rebuked. So Abraham prayed to God, and God healed Abimelech, his wife, and his female servants. Then they bore children. For the Lord had closed up all the wombs of the house of Abimelech because of Sarah, Abraham's wife. Now, that is a strange tale, is it not? But that's not the end of it. The very next verse... But they happen to put it in the next chapter, although they're not chapter breaks in the Bible. They're put in there by whoever decided to put them in there. The very next verse says this, after Abraham prayed for Abimelech, and the Lord visited Sarah as he had said, and the Lord did for Sarah as he had spoken. For Sarah conceived and bore Abraham a son in his old age, at the set time which God had spoken to him. And Abraham called the name of his son who was born to him, who Sarah born to him, Isaac. What does Isaac mean? Laughter. Laughter. Abraham was a 100 years old when his son Isaac was born to him. And Sarah said, God has made me laugh, and all who hear will laugh with me. Now, when you read this portion of Genesis, it contains a powerful truth concerning a specific and important aspect of prayer. In the verse, we find for the very first time in the Bible two words the word prophet and the word pray. They appear for the very first time in that same verse For he is a prophet and he will pray. Now, I think the idea of a prophet developed over history. But what that meant then to me was a prophet was a friend of God's. For he is a prophet, and he will pray. And he will pray for you, and you shall live. So the first time in the Scripture that the Lord identified a man as a prophet, he specifically charged him to pray a blessing upon who? His enemy. In this way, Abraham was the friend of God, and we're called the sons of Abraham. We're called to be God's friend as well. And this kind of prayer should be at the heart of everyone's prayer life, and I know it's not. I know it's not. But Abraham's fundamental response or obedience in this situation was to pray. And when you look at who Abimelech is, Abimelech was a king, a powerful king, and for all intents and purposes, he was a powerful king in a territory that God had specifically told Abraham he was to possess. And yet God asked of Abraham to pray for this man so that his wife, And his children would bear more children, and that would only do this. It would only fortify Abimelech's kingdom. It's very interesting to note that. When Abraham was praying for Abimelech, he was having to trust God at a much higher level than he normally would. So, as a result of Abraham's obedience, a remarkable healing also took place in Sarah's life. For immediately after praying, Sarah became pregnant immediately after praying for Abimelech, Abraham's wife, who was unable to bear, but whom God had promised would bear, became pregnant. This story carries an enormous implication. Isaac means laughter, and I believe this process has the potential to reju- to release joy. And laughter and fulfillment to everyone who really gets the message. Because our Isaac will be born. Our promise will be born. That thing that brings us joy and fulfillment will be born. But Isaac was not born until after Abraham prayed for the restoration of childbearing in Abimelech's household. How many of you are listening? Abraham was in a tremendous personal crisis, and the way through it was to pray for someone he would not want to pray for. Many in the church world today have never seen the birth of their Isaacs because they haven't recognized this test of their faith. Let me say that again. Many have never seen the birth of their Isaac, so-called, quote-unquote, because they have not recognized this test of their faith. The harboring of resentment and contentions with others are symptoms of this plague that impoverishes so much of the church. But we've got to understand this. Our Isaacs will not be born until we pray for our Abimelechs. Now, as I've been teaching on this, The Lord's beginning to show me resentments that I have. That's the problem with preaching. (laughs) You're held accountable. But there's situations with people that the Lord's beginning to show me um, resentments for, and I've had to start dealing with them. But until we pray for our Abimelechs, we won't see the birth of our Isaacs. Now, this isn't just some bizarre story in the Old Testament alone. This is a principle of life that you see throughout the Scripture. The same principle was at work in Job's life. He was also identified as a prophet and as one who prayed for his adversaries. In uh, James 5, verses 10 and 11, it says, My brethren, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord as an example of suffering and patience. Indeed, we count them blessed who endure. You have heard of the perseverance of Job and seen the end intended by the Lord, that the Lord is very compassionate, and merciful. And so James is talking about Job being an example of someone who, although suffered, developed patience and endured and discovered at the end what God intended for his life. But what we don't also see is how that intended end came. In Job 42, verse 10, it says, And the Lord restored Job's losses when he prayed for his friends. And if you look at what kind of friends he had, they weren't that good. Indeed, the Lord gave Job twice as much as he had before. Job's friends were friends who gave him bad advice concerning the Lord's dealings. Job's wife actually said, you need to curse God and die. That was not that good of advice. It would have been easy for him to come bitter and miss the purposed end of the Lord. But Job received the end intended by the Lord when? Only after he prayed for those friends. Both Job and Abraham found a release in the fullness of the promises of God when they blessed their adversaries. This is one of the ways of the Lord. Jealousy is another reason you won't do this. You won't pray. You'll be jealous. You'll be resentful. And then Jesus addressed these same these very same issues in the Sermon of the Mount. You have heard that it was said you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies. Bless those who curse you. Do good to those who hate you. And pray for those who spitefully use you and persecute you, that you may be the sons of your Father in heaven. For he makes his son rise on the evil and on the good, and he sends rain on the just and the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you, what reward do you have? Let me read that again. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same. And tax collectors were the most despised people in Israel, Jews who worked for the Rome, Roman governors. And if you greet your brethren only, what do you do more than others? Do not even the tax collectors do that? Therefore, you shall be perfect. That means grown up, perfect, grown up, just as your Father in heaven is perfect. Perfect. was thinking too in Matthew seven. Do not judge and criticize and condemn others. Let me say that again. I want you to repeat this after me. Do not judge and criticize and condemn others. So that you may not be judged and criticized and condemn yourselves you don't have to keep repeating but listen to this part three little words ought to scare us all half to death for just as three little words for just as say that and don't say any more just say for just as for just as you judge and criticize and condemn others you will be judged and criticized and condemned in accordance with the measure you use to deal out to others. It will be dealt out again to you. What if God gives you what you hope your enemy gets? Jesus is talking. He's saying this. What, What if your anger and resentment which can be manifest in a desire or criticism for someone else, is exactly what you get. Well, that's what the Lord says. He puts the measure in our hand that He uses to determine the amount of those emotions or feelings or even experiences we receive. What if we received the portion we desire for our enemies to have? Would you begin to relate differently to people you don't like or people that have hurt you or people that are on a different side of the political aisle or however you look at it? But I'm going to tell you this truth will reveal to you the hardness of your heart. I'm serious. If you take this to heart, you will begin to see how far off you are from the way we're called to live and to the way that enables us to live well because we reap what we sow. I've told this story before, but it's such a revealing story. I just want to tell it again. When I was a salesman for a restaurant equipment company, I was paid by commission. This is 40 years ago. But over the years, as my business grew, my income increased the company paid the installation crew by the hour, and I was making way more than they were. And some of them became jealous because of the success I had. And one man in particular made it his mission to make my life difficult. Matter of fact, when he wasn't out installing and I was out selling, he would come sit at my desk and he would put cigarettes out in my drawer. That was when you could smoke in an office. He would, I remember this, although I'm not resentful, I, re- <laughs> I can remember picking up my phone one time, and there were pieces of ham on the on, he had been chewing and hacking or something away of my telephone while I was gone, and I was not happy about that. So one day, when they weren't on a installation, they were out in the back of the warehouse, washing the service truck. And I was I was standing up almost like a platform, and the truck was down in the parking lot. We had a place we received um, trucks that dro- drove in and unloaded, and I was standing up there watching him. He's lathering up the truck and washing it. He's a big old guy. I can see it right now. He looked like the Goodyear blimp in certain ways because the <laughs> the service shirts were blue with white stripes. So he looked like a, you know, that's okay. So... He was down there working away, and when I looked down at my feet, there was a water hose with had one of those pistol grips on it. You know what I'm talking about? And when you squeeze it, it squirts water. And I thought, man, this is too good to be true. I'm gonna soak this guy good. I'm getting even. Um so when I picked up the hose. And I actually had, I might even at that point in my life had on a three-piece suit because I knew I had a customer to call on that afternoon. I had a meeting. I at least had on a tie. And I stood up in that dock and I aimed that water hose right at him. And what I didn't realize was I was holding it backwards. And when I squeezed it, I had mercy on him. And didn't squirt him, but I wanted to squirt near him just to let him know I could have squirted him. And the water shot right by my ear. What's the message? Whatever I wanted him to have, I was going to get. And whatever mercy I extended to him, I would receive. The water shot backwards. I thought, maybe we're praying backward. How many of you ever been so mad at somebody you ask the Lord to hurt them or take something away from them? Anybody besides me ever do that? I've done that. That's terrible. Guess what? It works, but in reverse. Isn't it terrible to be that sorry a person that you'd actually pray for disaster to come on somebody? But that's how hurt you can get. Jesus wants us to bless our enemies. He wants us to pray for people that we would not normally pray for. I want you to ask yourself, who is it you can't pray for or won't pray for? Who is it when you think of them that little uh, happens? Who knows what the urn uh, is? Come on. Who knows what that is? That's not good. That's not good. One of the things the Lord has shown me over the years is that judging people's motives are the primary thing that keeps that uh, feeling in our hearts. And the minute you adopt the humility, and that's what it is, to not believe you know their motive, bitterness begins to dissipate. And here's what Jesus said. They didn't know what they were doing. Forgive them, Father, for they what? Know not. Looked like they knew to me when they crucified jesus but jesus had a way of looking at what happened to him that kept him continually free father forgive them for they know not what they do and i do think of the words of paul in 1st timothy 2 therefore i exhort you first of all that supplications prayers, intercessions, and giving of thanks be made for who? All men, for kings, and all who are in authority that we may lead a quiet and peaceable life in all godliness and reverence. For this is good. For this is acceptable in the sight of God our Savior. Who desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. For there's one God and one mediator between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus, who gave himself a ransom for all to be testified in due time. I wonder what would happen if the church at large prayed FOR for our president and our vice president, and our governors, and our mayors, and our representatives, instead of condemning them and criticizing them. doesn't mean you have to agree with what they've done. That's not the point. But Jesus said, bless those that curse you. Well, if we bless them, won't their curses be of more effect? I don't think they would be. Maybe they'd be of less effect. Maybe Jesus, God forbid, knows what he's talking about. Of course not, God forbid, but you know what I'm saying. Bless those. What if we could pray for them and they would meet Jesus? We don't, we don't believe that will happen. That's why we don't do it. Well, what if it would happen? What if our enemies would become our friends? I was reading. I was at the beach a couple days last week, and I was reading the Song of Solomon, and I was struck by... The dance. There was a dance that went on between the Shulamite and the shepherd, or whoever it was there, and it's speaking about a love relationship between God and His people, and they called that dance the dance of the, I think it's called in Hebrew Mahaneam, or the dance of the two camps, and that actually comes from a story in 2 Samuel where Saul and David's um, mighty men were going to have a battle. And it was going to be 12 of Abner's fiercest warriors and 12 of David's fiercest warriors. There was going to be a battle of the two camps. And at a given point... One commander said to the other, are we just going to keep killing each other till there's nobody left? And instead of having a battle, it's as though they had a dance. Instead of fighting each other, they danced with each other. And there was a remarkable reconciliation between two hostile groups, that no one ever thought could be reconciled. Do we have that kind of faith for our nation? That there could be a dance of two camps instead of wars between camps. So, Father, we pray today for our government. We pray for our leaders. We ask that you would move on them. Lord, we don't agree with the things or some of the things they say or those things they do, but, Lord, we're asking for mercy to rain down, for help to come. Lord, for those who have offended us in our personal lives, for those who have wounded us, for situations that have done this and, and we've been hurt or felt betrayed, or, or, Lord, we release that now. We go to that pool of bitterness And we cast in, we cast in that tree that you've shown us. We take everything to the cross where you make bitter water sweet. And we speak blessing. And we speak forgiveness. Lord, you know who we're talking about in each individual life. And we do that in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Let me ask this over the last couple of weeks, and it's good to acknowledge these things. Because when you acknowledge a repentance, you're acknowledging your faith and every good thing that's at work in you. How many of you over the last couple of weeks have seen places where you need to forgive or release somebody? Yeah, yeah. That's, that's great. We do, Lord. We bless them. We ask you to help them. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. You've been listening to the Queen City Church Sermon of the Week. For more information on this message and other resources, visit queencity.church.